Good evening. Welcome to Tisky Sour. I'm your host, Aaron Bastani, filling in for the irreplaceable Michael Walker. At least he thinks so. Tonight, I'm joined by Dahlia Gabriel as we discuss some of the most important stories of the day. Dahlia, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm glad to see that the Middle Eastern takeover of Tisky Sour is finally underway, as I've been planning for many years. Yeah, so happy to join you, Aaron. <laughs> and you're in Berlin, aren't you? You're, it's really high over there. It's like 33 degrees or something? Yeah. Yeah, it's like above 30 and it will be for the whole week. And I'm in a room that is directly, the sun is directly blaring into. So if I get shiny Oof. over the course of this show, don't be alarmed. Oof. We won't try and keep it short because we've got a lot to cover, but I, I certainly sympathize with your situation. We are about to be hit with historic rises to our energy bills. Rises that are going to prove completely unmanageable for huge numbers of people. You don't need me to tell you that. By the end of this year, 8.5 million households are expected to enter fuel poverty. That means they'll be unable to heat their homes adequately. In October last year, the average fuel bill was £1,400 a year. By October this year, it'll be over £3,000. By January, it'll probably hit nearly £4,500. That's right. Our bills on energy will have tripled in just 15 months. Surely, surely the government is going to take this in hand. You'd certainly hope so. Here's Education Minister James Cleverley on GMB this morning. What is going on with government? Well, the Chancellor of the Exchequer and the Business Secretary are actually calling in the leaders of those big energy companies to knock some heads together and uh, basically hold them to account about what they're going to do with those uh, profits. Now, the increase in energy costs has been driven by the war in Ukraine and a global crunch. This is affecting everyone pretty much across the world. Everyone in the developing world is seeing those energy bills go up. What we need to do is make sure that we have a short, medium and long term uh, plan. So the chance from the business secretary are getting those energy companies in as part of the uh, short term uh, response. When, when will that the, plan be announced? When will that plan well, be formulated and when will it be announced? Because we are being told by people of, of considerable experience and seniority, people like Gordon Brown, who are making apolitical points. They're not use it. They're not playing party politics. And they're saying we've got Martin Lewis coming on, the economist coming on on the show later, saying without any hesitation that if we don't get an action plan in place in the next week or week or so, uh, that we're going to have major problems in the autumn. Well, the, uh, our system means that once the Prime Minister has said he is going to stand down, there is a well-established principle, which is that uh, an outgoing Prime Minister should not make very big uh, policy-changing uh, decisions. Well, well, maybe, maybe, maybe you should and kick Gordon... that tradition into touch. Maybe you should suspend that tradition because we are in exceptional circumstances. That may be the tradition under normal uh, circumstances. We are not in normal circumstances here. Let's just get one thing out of the way, straight off the bat. While it's true that energy prices are going up across the world, it's not true they're going up as much as ours. The rise in the UK's prices are far higher than anywhere else in Europe. The average price rise in the EU is just 41%. Compare that to 215% here in Britain. And France, which has nationalized EDF and relies heavily on nuclear energy, is only seeing a 4% price rise. Now, this is something we're almost never told, that we're being hit so much harder than our neighbors. Because to say that would be to reveal that the decision to fleece us is exactly that, a decision, a political choice. 
Let's just go back to that convention cleverly mentioned. That's the idea that the government can't do anything about the energy crisis because we're all held hostage by some gentlemen's agreements. Later, Martin Lewis was asked for his thoughts. Government seemed to be adamant that things, uh, nothing can happen until the new prime minister comes in, that decisions can't be made until September the 5th. What a load of bull. That's complete bull. I won't use the final word on the back of it. That is just simply not true. Let's be very plain. In May, when the government was facing political problems due to Boris Johnson, they were planning to make announcements in energy in July and August. That was brought forward in May, and the mechanism for bringing it forward in May is they asked Ofgem to publish forward guidance of what the price cap would be, and they were therefore able to crystallise what was happening, and they made the announcements of the up to £1,200 available for the poorest homes. There is absolutely nothing stopping the government doing it that now, and we have a party in government that controls the majority of the House of Commons. That's how our political system works. The fact that there is internecine warfare between two candidates to lead that party does not stop the government doing anything. Those two candidates could make an agreement of what's going to happen. So the idea that they can't do anything is wrong. It's true. Parliament could be recalled. There could be COBRA meetings. Senior Tories could decide to focus their minds on ordinary people rather than squabble over who can be the most right-wing. Imagine that. Instead, Boris Johnson's putting his feet up in Slovenia while Nadim Zahawi plans to hold cosy chats with the energy firm bosses. Here's cleverly again. In essence, then, you are saying nothing can be done now. We have to wait until the leader comes in, and that's just the mechanism. So you're, you are essentially saying we are in limbo. We do have this zombie government that whatever no, happens in I, the country, off, whatever no, happens in the world, there is no saying, mechanisms for no, action to be taken by, by saying, the government at the moment because of the situation we're in, because of the fact that Boris Johnson is no longer prime minister. We have to wait for the next prime minister to come. Then the, the, everything grinds to a halt because of that, whatever the circumstances. No, the very first thing I said in this interview is that the Chancellor of the Exchequer and the Business Secretary today have got the leaders of those energy companies into Whitehall and they are grilling them about this situation and about ensuring that the uh, the unexpected, unprojected increase in fuel prices and therefore increases in their profits uh, is actually used to support the people that need support and is actually used to ensure that we have greater energy generation so we are not so reliant on uh, uh, the the vagaries of uh, international markets and that we are able to protect okay. ourselves about uh, against the circumstances that have been created right. by the war in Ukraine. So we are dealing with it today. We have already got support packages in place. Those will be enhanced through an emergency budget. And Liz has already announced some of the things that will be done. Right. Well, you might be talking about it today, but you're not actually dealing with it, are you? We'll just wait to see what action is taken, uh, well, and that will come further down the line. But James Cleverly, thanks for your time well, it, this morning. Yes, it just, just very quickly, Mr Cleverly, what it seems to me that has emerged from this is that you've confirmed that the Prime Minister is a Prime Minister without power because of, no. a, con because of a convention, you've said it in this interview, because of a convention that they don't take... The government 
decisions when working. They don't I'm in Westminster that, that today. Was interrupting. Um, I'm in Westminster. But, but they, I'm don't, they don't take important decisions once they've been Action's deposed. not being taken. So no, he's basically he's, he's, a, he's a prime minister without power. You're no. saying that you're saying that we have to wait for this leadership thing to play out, and and you're saying that it isn't possible for Parliament to be recalled for an emergency debate on on, on, a, on an emergency budget, and you're saying that you don't think it's a possibility that the two leaders in waiting, as it were, get together with the prime minister today. Never mind the meeting you talk about, but a meeting between one of the two people who is going to be the next prime minister with the existing prime minister to make some special decisions today. That's off the table. Nothing's going to happen until September. Well, no, I, d I don't agree with that assessment, Richard. I don't agree. All right. With that. Well, I, I don't know what else to say. I mean, that's that's what you said. Anyway, no, not, listen, it's, listen. It's it was a, I said it was an honest the chance. No, the chancellor. <laughs> And the business secretary have called they're having in those. Talks. Yeah, they're yeah, having talk. talks. But Dear. you know that, that we need action right now. It's, it's that not is sort action. of talk. That is action. That's having what a talk, we... but, that, but that's not offering anything, is it? Though no, that's just that's having talks about what could be done further down the line. It's not offering people the immediate help that they're going to need. Let's forget the government for a minute and look instead at what Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak are offering. Truss's approach has been to promise an emergency budget in September and to reverse Sunak's national insurance rise, remove green levies on energy bills, and cut taxes. Of course, tax cuts won't benefit the poorest in the country, those who are going to be hit hardest by rising energy bills. But it will put a lump sum in the pockets of those who can readily afford the increases. And green energy levies, well, they make up less than 8% of the average household bill. Truss initially promised her Tory base that she won't be giving any handouts to the poor, but in what looks like a U-turn, she's now said, I'll do everything I can to help struggling households, whatever that means. Sunak has stuck to the line of simply increasing the amount given to households through the payment scheme he put in place while Chancellor. He hasn't been firm on figures, but he told ITV he would raise it by a few hundred pounds. So Sunak seems at least to be offering something to the poorest though he'd have to more than double the current offer to make it go the same distance by January. The Tories don't seem to have much to offer, so let's take a look at what Labour is planning. Shadow Education Secretary Bridget Phillipson has appeared on the BBC. Where is Keir Starmer? Well, Keir Starmer you know, will be working on further measures that Labour will set out around this. I'm absolutely what will he confident be doing? of that. If Keir Starmer were Prime Minister right now, I can tell you we would not have got to this point. Are we going we've to been hear saying from him? Since last, we will. We've been saying since last when? autumn, we've been saying since last autumn that greater action was needed. I've been on programmes like this since last year, talking about the, the action that we need to see. It was clear that this was coming. Hand in hand uh, with rising food prices, the cost of the weekly shop going up, the cost of the petrol pump, the rising cost of childcare. There is such a big squeeze that working people are facing right now. When and will we, we hear out, from Keir Starmer? Uh, we will hear further very, very soon about additional measures that Labour will put in place to make sure that families get the support that they so need. There is we, a have plan? Set out, we have set out immediate plans around cutting VAT in the short term to provide that help and the long-term plan to provide insulation, long-term energy security and cutting people's bills by making sure that we aren't as exposed as, as Britain currently is. Other countries are not as exposed as we when are. When you say very because soon, had a government how soon that is very soon? For the long term. How soon is very soon? But we'll, you know, we'll hear Days? very soon additional, yes. Within additional, a week? 
we'll hear very soon additional measures that Labour will set out around the immediate support that families need. We've been ahead of the government on this, consistently ahead of the government, whether it's the windfall tax, cuts to VAT on energy bills, not cutting universal credit, extra help around breakfast clubs and childcare. We've been consistently ahead on this, but I do recognise that we're getting to a very different and difficult point in this crisis and that additional measures will be needed. National insurance cuts, insulation, do any of these people get it? This crisis isn't down the road, it's not coming in five years' time, it's here. As Sky News reported, households are already £1.3 billion in debt to energy firms, and that's two months before the next big price hike. What's needed is genuine change and genuine support now. But whatever Labour is planning, we know it won't be radical enough, even in the long term, because Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves has already ruled out nationalisation. Dahlia, the energy crisis blindsided the political class, partially because it's the result of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which only happened in February. Yet they still don't grasp the implications of these price rises. Do you think either party will start offering serious help as the winter closes in? Well, it's becoming increasingly clear that for both Labour and the Tories, they don't really see it as their job to, to do that, to offer serious help in a way that would in any way compromise uh, the bottom line of the most powerful of the biggest companies operating in the UK today. It's so important to hammer home that point that things really could be dramatically different. I think that even without implementing radical change, things could be dramatically different. You know, the Tories very much like to present this crisis as something that fell from the sky and is completely out of our control. There's nothing that we can do. We're all being impacted by this. And, and to an extent, obviously, that is that is true. You know, this energy crisis is a result of issues in the supply chain, of a multifaceted, it's a multifaceted crisis, the causes of which are not all in the direct control of, of the British state. We have an incredibly inefficient and destructive, volatile global energy system uh, that does not serve people's needs and it never has. That That's a big systemic question that is not only solvable by the British government, although the British state historically has played a big role in setting up that energy system and so could play a much bigger role in dismantling it, but that's a conversation for another day. Regardless of how unprecedented many parts of this crisis were, so much of how it is being experienced by everyday people the distribution of impact is completely within the remit of, of the government, even within the remit of, of a capitalist government. You know, we're not even talking about transferring from capitalism to socialism here. You know, when you look at, at other parts of, of Europe, not only, as you've shown, are we seeing a much smaller increase in energy bills, but we are seeing more attention paid by governments to the knock-on effect of these increases in energy. You know, where I am in Berlin right now, uh, the government is subsidizing a nine euro monthly travel ticket. So that covers all public transport in Germany. So for nine euros a month, I can travel by train, by bus, by tram, anywhere in Germany. And, you know, it is a temporary measure for the cost of living crisis, for sure. 
But it is very, very likely that some form of, of subsidized public transport will continue throughout this cost of living crisis. And that's killing, you know, two birds with one stone. You're, you're normalizing public transportation use over individual car usage, which is obviously in the long term really important for, for the environment. And you are providing a little bit of a cushion for people's spiraling costs during this crisis. And, you know, Germany, this is not a socialist haven. You know, this is a solidly neoliberal capitalist economy. And I'm not even saying that the measures that the German government are implementing go far enough. You know, the German poor are still being really hit very hard. But it just goes to show that even the most minor concessions, totally possible within a capitalist state, are not even being considered by our government. That is a choice, you know, the choice to use working class people as a human shield to protect companies from the most minor loss in their profits during this energy crisis. That is a, a choice being taken um, by this government. And the decision to make it and making a different choice is not this deeply complex, you know, James Cleveland was talking about it, like, you know, we're asking him to solve a Rubik's cube behind his back with one hand and blindfolded. You can just look to our most immediate neighbors and you will see very small concessions, very easy policies that could be passed in the very near future, almost immediately, that are shown to really dramatically improve people's ability to weather this crisis. And the fact that that is not happening is not a result of, you know, the gentleman's agreement of not making policy when, you know, a, a leader of, an, of the party is essentially a lame duck. It's not because it's beyond the realms of, of imagination. It's not because it's even incompatible with capitalism. It is simply a choice to squeeze as much as possible out of the working class so that the big energy companies, their shareholders, their execs come out of this crisis, not only unscathed, but with their pockets even fatter. Yeah, it's such a good point about the um, the alternatives in France, Germany, because you've got elements of the media saying, oh, we don't know what to do. There's no easy choices. And when you're talking about COVID and people were saying, well, look, other countries like Vietnam or Taiwan or South Korea are doing things differently. That's kind of hard when a country several thousand miles away. I get it. France is like 20 miles away and their energy bills are going up 4%. EDF operates energy interests in this country. And again, similarly with the German train story that you mentioned, Dali, it's super important. We have Italian and French and German train operators running our trains in this country. It's just we can't have publicly owned British companies doing it. If they're from elsewhere, that's fine. And so this whole, like, oh, well, there are no good options. I mean, it's just such a crock of crap. I won't get too rude because I want to replace Michael more often. I don't want this to be a one-off. Next story. Martin Lewis has consistently warned of how bad the cost of living crisis will get. He is the crystal clear voice of reason, but he seems to be screaming into the political void. The latest energy price projections show an even bigger hike in October and January than expected, and Lewis has tried one more time to get the political class to sit up and pay attention. State pensioners, the new energy price cap on typical use, and many pensioners have higher than typical use for obvious reasons, is going to be 45% of the current state pension and more of the older form of the state pension. 45%. This is not a mortgage. This is not rent. This is 
just energy bills. And tax cuts are not going to help the poorest pensioners. It's not going to help those on universal credits. But dropping the green mm. levy is a sticking plaster on a gaping wound. It's 150 quid. We're talking a year-on-year year rise here. You know, by the time you get to January, over 18 months, some people will see their bills go from £800 to £4,200 on the um. same use. This is a national crisis on the scale that we saw in the pandemic. We are currently in that position where we are watching the beds in European hospitals and doing nothing about it and allowing people go to sporting events. And do not negate the mental health damage that is being done to people in panic now across the nation. And the political theatre of allowing the 26th of August to come when we get the price cap announcement with nothing firm in place is incredibly damaging. When I last spoke to you about, and we talked about potential civil unrest, there were 3,000 people on the don't pay group. It's now 100,000 people. This is not something that can wait. We need to get firm decisions coming from the key parties. Rishi Sunak needs to say okay. more detail of what he will do, okay. and Liz Truss needs to say more of what she will do. Okay. And if it is just tax cuts and the green levy, then we are going to leave millions destitute and in danger this winter, and that cannot happen in our country. This is truly frightening stuff. How loud does the man need to yell fire before someone pays attention? Dahlia, is this giving you early days of the pandemic flashbacks too? Yeah, in, in so many ways. And I think that it's really interesting that Martin Lewis kind of brought those two things into comparison with one another. We kind of have almost, I mean, we haven't moved on from the pandemic, but it feels like that's being disconnected from what's happening right now. Much like the pandemic, this cost of living crisis is exposing so many pre-existing long-term issues in, in how we have chosen to, well, not we, how the powerful have chosen to organize our world. You know, the pandemic was like, it was like an x-ray on our, on our society, showing up all of the inequalities and the vulnerabilities and the contradictions of our social, economic, and, and ecological systems. And instead of looking that in the face, of reckoning with it and, and using it as an opportunity to really begin to explore long-term radical change and you know, a corrective to those issues, we found ourselves being forced to beg for, for morsels, to beg for the most short-term, immediate kinds of relief that really should have been a given in any humane or sensible society. And the exact same is true right now. You know, if we had a reasonable government, we wouldn't be having to <clears throat> do up like maths 101 and trying to explain to, you know, a finance guy, an ex-chancellor, that giving people £1,200 isn't going to help when bills are going to be going up by several thousands of pounds. No, we'd instead actually be using this, this moment to talk about the much more radical and systemic stuff. We'd be using it as an opportunity to finally recognize that our, our global energy system is not working and has not been working for a really long time. Not only does it actually fail to make energy accessible to everyone, even though it's completely within the realms of a possibility that everyone could have consistent energy access. Um, not only have they long, but these energy companies long been making astronomical profits by extorting the world's poorest, 
but it's also a deeply catastrophic industry. It's responsible for climate breakdown, for land grabs, for untold human rights abuses. Its inefficiency and its destruction has long been artificially propped up by, by government handouts, by publicly funded handouts. And consumers have long been forced to bear the brunt of the volatility and inefficiency of oil. So, so now that we are seeing here, you know, the intensification of all of those pre-existing problems to the point where we might actually have to see in the UK, you know, coordinated energy blackouts during the winter, maybe now is the time to actually change some of those fundamental issues and have a really radical conversation about what that could look like, not only to solve this current crisis, but to also prevent future similar ones, which are in the DNA of our energy system. But instead, we are fighting for absolute peanuts. And, and where is, you know, where is the opposition? Like, I'm not expecting the Tories to socialize and green our energy system. But is there like anyone out there other than the unions and Martin Lewis vouching for ordinary people here? Like, would the real Labour Party, like, please stand up? Because the one that we've got just has less than nothing to offer working class people. When it comes to resisting bills perceived as unfair, Britain has a decent record. Most memorably, there was opposition to the poll tax in 1990, an upsurge of discontent, which not only killed the tax itself, but toppled Margaret Thatcher as prime minister. It's that history the Don't Pay UK campaign has sought to capture. Their aim is to build a mass non-payment strike of energy bills starting on October the 1st. Now, data from the pollster Savanta, published in The Independent, suggests their campaign is supported by a majority of the public. 55% of Britons agree that an organised campaign of non-payment is justified if prices increase as forecast in the coming months. Rather than being skewed by younger adults who are less risk-averse, a whopping 70% of 35 to 44-year-olds think a boycott of bills is justified. Now, these are the people with kids, mortgages, and businesses. It's hard to write off that age bracket as young people who should know better. So, a majority back non-payment. But here's where it gets even more interesting. Almost half of respondents, 44% to be exact, fear there will be riots if consumers are given no further help on their bills. More surprisingly still, 29% of respondents said rioting would be justified. Now, that's a minority, but it's a surprisingly large one, given it's condoning what would amount to criminal behaviour. Personally, I've never seen anything like that in British polling. Such sentiment isn't evenly distributed. Among 18 to 24-year-olds, 49% say rioting is justified. Among Londoners, it's 41%, while 52% say it is unjustified. Among 35 to 44-year-olds, that age bracket again, 41% said rioting would be justified. Perhaps most important of all, though, is that Savanta found that 7% of respondents have already refused to pay their bills in full, and a further 19% are considering joining them. If that's correct, then around a quarter of the public would be open to getting involved in Don't Pay's campaign. Dahlia, we've spoken about this campaign on the show a few times now. Does this data surprise you? Does it change your assessment of whether or not this campaign can achieve what it wants to? 
I think what surprises me is, you know, as you've pointed out, the kind of the age distribution, the distribution across across generations. And also, I think 7% having actually already refused to pay their bills. That's incredible because that's not just people saying what they would theoretically do. That's actually doing it, which I think is a really good start, especially, in, and it will probably expand as, as we go into the winter. I think a lot of people, you know, powerful people in powerful positions in government, in, in media and, and in these energy companies are probably looking at that data and uh, starting to get worried. And that's obviously a good thing. It demonstrates our potential power. But with that power comes, you know, obviously risk of a very hefty uh, crackdown. Uh, I think we're going to see a lot more of a concerted effort, particularly in the media and in government to really stigmatize this campaign to even maybe threaten anyone who who signs on to it to kind of really divide and conquer, you know, all of those classic tactics we're already seeing the beginnings of, you know, a reemergence of very Thatcher era union bashing uh, in the media and, and across the government. Unfortunately, with enthusiasm of the so-called Labour Party, you know, is this a risky strategy to, to boycott bills? Uh, of course, you know, tackling injustice often is very risky. Black people who, who resisted Jim Crow were taking a risk every time they you know, did sit-ins at whites-only lunch counters. You know, this is kind of a fact of, of history. But what a movement has to do is really figure out how are we going to, as best as we can, protect people from that risk um, as much as possible through not only direct support, but also, more importantly, through solidarity, through through numbers. And, you know, with all of this this talk, I'm thinking a lot about a union leader that I spoke to for the Planet B podcast, actually, which is on Navarra Media, who is actually told me about a similar campaign that happened uh, in the, the Philippines. He's the, the general secretary or the vice general secretary of the energy workers union in the Philippines. And they actually deployed this tactic of consumers uh, boycotting energy bills. So this isn't new. In the Philippines, after what they used to have, which was energy cooperatives, corporatized, and as a result, energy bills went through the roof, many consumers actually refused to pay their bills. And then after a typhoon hit, the company then refused to reconnect those consumers as essentially a punishment for having boycotted their bills. So the communities that had been boycotting their bills, after a typhoon happened, the energy companies refused to reconnect them. And so energy workers that were already on the picket line protesting, you know, downward wages, et cetera, acted in solidarity with those consumers and actually reconnected them in the wake of that typhoon. And then this like weird kind of push and pull struggle developed where the workers would reconnect the consumers and then the energy companies would disconnect the consumers and then the workers would again reconnect those consumers. And now that trade union is actually training its workers to install solar panels in people's houses so that they aren't at the behest of these energy companies to that extent. And this is a struggle that is still ongoing. So I can't even say whether or not it's achieved its aims. But we really can learn from those communities around the world that have already for many years been taking action against these energy companies and employing a variety of strategies including um, boycotting bills that challenge the power of these energy companies. Because as is often the case, uh, communities in the global north are late to the resistance party. They're late to the struggle party because those communities in the south 
been at the brunt of this model, this exploitative energy system for a really long time and have resisted and developed movement knowledge and strategy as a result of that. So I would really like to see, you know, not just solidarity within the UK and within amongst workers in the UK, but solidarity and knowledge exchange amongst, you know, energy worker unions across the world, because that is also going to be very important when it comes to tackling climate breakdown. Yeah, I think the thing that really struck me the most in that data, and there's some really extraordinary numbers there, was the one around, would rioting be justified? Now, 29% is a minority, but it's almost a third of the public. And I think if you were the conservatives or the police or just a part of the, of the establishment or the state apparatus, you'd be thinking, well, hold on. Yes, energy is going up, fuel has gone up, but we've still got to see a long way to go with price rises. It's going to really hit home, of course, in the winter when energy demand is highest. We're going to see further interest rate rises. We're going to see all kinds of forms of inflation kick in. You know, we're looking at RPI inflation 18% this year. And I would think, well, look, before that's all really come online, it's already 30% think rioting is justified. Dahlia, do you think that's too abstract a question for somebody to answer in a poll? Because, you know, it's either something you agree or disagree with in real time when you see it happening in front of you. Or do you think if we did see major public discontent expressed like that, that we might see a public response rather different, say, to the 2011 riots in England? It's really difficult to, to say. I think that, yes, on the one hand, it is, it is an abstract question and people might have a response in a poll that they might not actually have in real life. But on the other hand, it is also kind of goes the other way. And I think people are very reluctant to admit, particularly when you're not in the heat of the moment, to admit that, that you would be supportive or at least that you would consider something like a riot to be justified. But what we would see again, and this is what the responsibility of the, the campaign and, and, and the unions as well, is to be very clear about this in the media, is that if and when that happens, there will be a very concerted, as we saw in the 2011 riots, although obviously those were able to be portrayed in a particular way because of the demographics that took place in that, that took part in that riot and the people who were really affected by it, that in the event of civil unrest, that it would be very clear from the beginning the systemic causes of such unrest and that when you push people, it is entirely historically precedented for when people have been pushed to that extent and when all avenues for legitimate opposition are either not working or have been exhausted, that people are going to resort to so-called forms of illegitimate opposition and that the people that should be held responsible for that are not those who were pushed to that because they're literally worried that they won't be able to heat their homes in the winter, but rather the people who had the power to actually help before it got to that position. So it's going to be very important that the messaging around that and the, you know, that the solidarity around that is already set in stone before something like that happens because it's really important that it doesn't become portrayed as some kind of pathological desire for violence. That's not what's happening here. What's happening here is that people are begging for the means to life. And when you don't give them that, you leave them with very little option. Otherwise, we don't want it to get to that position, but we aren't the ones who have the power to actually stop it getting to that. 
So far this summer, we've seen some pretty big strikes. 40,000 rail workers walked out over paying conditions in June and July, as did 10,000 London underground workers, and over 40,000 BT workers downed tools over two days at the end of July and the beginning of August. Now joining them are workers at Royal Mail. They've just announced a series of one-day strikes later this month. And when the posties walk out, it will be in staggering numbers, with 115,000 workers set to strike, making it the biggest strike of the summer so far. And Royal Mail bosses are spooked. This was the FT's headline in response. Royal Mail warns on material UK losses if strikes proceed. Well, yes, that's the point of strikes. Threatening the bottom line is the only bargaining power workers have. But fears of material losses didn't stop Royal Mail from paying out £400 million to shareholders last year. Nor did it stop them from transferring over 70,000 shares to Royal Mail Chief Financial Officer Mick Jevons on the very same day the strikes were announced. At today's value, that stock is worth nearly £200,000. That's on top of the £465,000 salary that was agreed when Jevons was appointed in 2021. Meanwhile, Chief Executive Simon Thompson's pay package is worth a staggering £753,000. Royal Mail's total profits for last year were £758 million, and yet it imposed a mere 2% pay rise on workers after the Communications Workers Union, the CWU, balloted for strike action. Now, that's in the context of inflation running at 13% later this year and 18% if you use the more realistic RPI measure. The CWU's General Secretary, Dave Ward, said this. Nobody takes the decision to strike lightly. But postal workers are being pushed to the brink. There can be no doubt that postal workers are completely united in their determination to secure the dignified, proper pay rise they deserve. We can't keep on living in a country where bosses rake in billions in profit while their employees are forced to use food banks. The CWU's message to Royal Mail's leadership is simple. There will be serious disruption until you get real on pay. The strikes are set to take place on Friday the 26th of August and Wednesday the 31st of August, as well as on Thursday and Friday the 8th and 9th of September. Dahlia, has it only just dawned on Royal Mail management that a prolonged strike will actually hit their bottom line? Well, I mean, I don't know where they've, where they've been, you know, what, what would they expect otherwise? You know, when we are facing one of the most intense inflation crises in living memory, and the governing party is, you know, flailing around with culture war bullshit and infighting, does it surprise me that across so many different sectors, we are seeing an eruption of organized labor and organized labor that is, you know, is taking shit seriously. It's, it's not a joke. You know, they're not playing around with, you know, mealy mouthed forms of strike action, that they're, they're hitting it where it hurts, because that is the position that we are in right now. This is a public emergency. And the, the solution needs to come, you know, not in six months, not in a year, not in a year and a half, it needs to come like yesterday. So, of course, you know, they shouldn't be surprised because working class people, when they are pushed like this, they always fight back. You know, that is, has been true throughout history. That fight back is not always successful, unfortunately, but it always happens. And 
you know, working class people have a right to say that. They have a right to say, we are not going to shoulder the brunt of this crisis alone after a pandemic, after a decade of austerity on steroids, and several more decades before that of you know, our basic needs, our basic services being privatized, being turned into an asset class in order to make rich people richer, which is, of course, what's happened to the Royal Mail. This crisis, it's not of our making. We spent two years being miserable in lockdowns while you guys were popping champagne corks. And now, whilst the richest companies are making unprecedented profits like Royal Mail, everyday workers are not going to sit down and be made to suffer. So as I said before, it is entirely historically precedented that we will see a pattern of strikes and militant strikes breaking out across different sectors, including the postal services, because as it stands, the only institutions representing regular people, the basic needs of regular people in this crisis are, are the trade unions. And what is really significant, I think, about this, this wave in general it's not only the fact that we are seeing strikes spilling out quite consistently now across traditionally middle class professional sectors like, you know, like barristers, like, like academic, like doctors, you know, the chair of the British Medical Association uh, last month said that NHS doctor strikes are basically inevitable. But what is also interesting is that we are also seeing these strikes spilling out into the private sector across the pond, we're seeing really amazing strike action in hospitality sector, in Starbucks, you know, in Amazon factories, uh, amongst gig economy workers. And of course, you know, the postal service in the UK is now in the private sector. It's been fully privatized. That's really significant because these are not historically well unionized sectors. You know, I think about 50% of the public sector is unionized, but only like 12% of the private sector is unionized. So that is, you know, these kind the strikes in these particular sectors, you know, private sectors and middle class professional sectors are really, really interesting and demonstrate a real shift in consciousness around what actually we need to do to tackle this, this crisis. Because prior to now, you know, union power was really, really low. That's a legacy of Thatcher's attack on unions. Because let's not forget, in the 1970s, when we had a similar crisis of inflation, union power, unionization was much stronger. And that's what allowed workers to collectively bargain and ensure that their pay was more tied to increases in inflation. But that level of unionization has not existed in the UK for a really long time. And so it's really good that we are seeing not only a kind of recovering of that tradition, but actually an expansion of that tradition into traditionally less than well unionized sectors. But what will actually decide, you know, whether or not um, we win is not about, you know, the individual disputes within sectors. Um, it has to be a generalization of this action. Uh, union solidarity across sectors, across races, across genders, and even to an extent across classes, you know, between the working class and the middle class, and of course, across national borders. And what is also really important is the refusal of the pitting of workers against consumers. That was really central to Thatcher's successful attack on the unions. And we are seeing the beginnings of that starting to kind of like come in. We saw it with the tube strikes, with the transport worker strikes. So that is something that we have to be very vigilant against. 
But luckily, it looks like the union movement is really taking heed of that. And we are beginning to see the generalization of those the, the of strike action across different sectors, the coordination of strike action with the Enough is Enough campaign, and then also the breaking down of that worker versus consumer division with the buy-in of unions with the don't pay campaign. So this is all, you know, we've got a really rocky road ahead because I'm sure that we will see the full force of the state to try and break this building of, of union power. But we are seeing the beginnings of some really good strategies that I think actually give us a chance of, of fighting back and fighting back and winning. I think there's so much that's true about everything you've said. And I would also want to impress on our viewers, who, who know this intuitively anyway, of course, what is happening and what's about to happen is extraordinary. You know, we, we've talked about CPI, Consumer Price Index, which is what the Bank of England uses. They said last week it's going to go to 13%. We talked about it going to 18% if you use RPI. RPI is the real rate of inflation. It includes things like mortgage repayments, student loans, etc. So that's the real rate of inflation. CPI is kind of cooking the books. When you have the real rate of inflation at 18%, you should be offering workers like 9, 10, 11%. They're still going to get poorer, but it's at least mitigating it a little bit. And I feel, Dali, that yes, people are getting their act together in the labor movement and social movements and so on, but this is so bad. You know, this is like the 1970s without the pay rises. You know, I think RPI, which was the inflation measure we used in the 20th century, we stopped using it, like I say, because we want to cook the books. The highest it went was 25%. You had wages keeping up, right? That was the point. This time you don't. And I think the political management of that, I think there's no historical memory for it, whether that's amongst private bosses, whether it's the government, whether it's police chiefs and people who care about public order. I think this is really dangerous terrain for the British state apparatus. It's something we'll obviously return to uh, continually, and it's informing a little bit of our, our final story, which is a bit silly season. So this is our next story. From newspaper owners to columnists and presenters, most people in the British media are quite right-wing. Nothing new there. Connected to that is the fact that many of them also pathologically hate socialist ideas and politicians. Again, hardly a revelation. But what is increasingly clear is that much of the British media, people who pride themselves on their intelligence and pluralism, effectively want a one-party state. They will only accept a Labour Party which is impossible to distinguish from the Conservatives. Here's Janan Ganesh. She writes for the Financial Times and is the former biographer of George Osborne. His advice to Keir Starmer? So not just purge the hard left, purge the soft left too. He writes, Problem now isn't the few and dispossessed Leninists. It is the MPs who voted under no psychotropic influence for Ed Miliband as leader in 2010. It is the campaigners for things. Given the cost of living crisis, rising energy bills, and the fact our infrastructure is falling to pieces, this reads like a sick joke. And given the fact the guy who beat Miliband in 2015, David Cameron, had to resign a year later after losing the Brexit referendum, makes it even worse. We often talk about Martin Lewis on this show. He's a campaigner and is literally the most trusted man in Britain. Does Jenna and Ganesh think people like that, like Martin Lewis, who are actually respected, liked, and listened to? Does he think they shouldn't be in politics? Really? And who should? Just stupid, unpopular people? But it doesn't end there. Apparently, Labour won't be credible until it drops its position on removing charitable status from private schools. Ganesh writes, 
The same is true of ending the charitable tax status for private schools. It is a question of permission and bona fides. Don't know what that means. It is a question of what the cops in Britain call your previous. Blair understood politics in those lateral terms. Starmer is a literalist. If he is to fulfill Labour's historic role of giving the Tories a breather after a long stint in office, he has to upset the soft left. He has to upset himself. This is an extraordinary thing to write. All the more since the Tories have done so much damage to the country since 2010. On every measure, they've been a disaster. And that's before the fact we're about to enter another recession, which is set to last as long as 2008. Between 2007 and 2018, average disposable incomes adjusted for purchasing power fell by 2% in the UK. Meanwhile, in France, they increased by 34%, and in Germany, by 27%. As a country, we've become poorer and weaker. And yet the best we can hope for is a Labour government that can give the Tories a rest. So presumably the Tories can come back and just do it all over again? Do we just get poorer forever, Janan? Dahlia, is this what a big chunk of the media elite believe in, that we broadly need two identical parties while things just get worse forever? For the, the kind of liberal establishment in the media who have always ostensibly said, you know, that they're anti-Tory and they, they want a Labour government to be in power. Over the past few years, I just found myself repeatedly wondering, like, why do you want a Labour party in power? Because all of the reasons why I might ostensibly have at one point wanted a Labour party in power, or, you know, when you look at the founding principles of the Labour party and all of this, that you seem to have a problem with every single one of those things. So I'm, and given that you essentially want Labour to be like the Tories, you know, but with a tiny little bit less edge, I'm just like, I, I just don't understand what, what you actually want to get out of a, out of a Labour government. Because I feel like a lot of the things that actually happened, even under Blair, you know, things like Sure Start centres, which the Labour right often like to talk of as, you know, the reason why we need to get a Labour Party in government, even if they're basically as right-wing as the Tories, because they'll give us sure start centres. They would probably consider that policy, you know, of socialised childcare, essentially, to be not even soft left, but radical left. So I'm not really sure what it is they want the Labour Party to actually do or why they want the Labour Party to even be in power. And that really begs the question of, to these people, what is the Labour Party for? You know, is it to expand the imagination of, of what is possible when it is in opposition and then to, when it's in government to actually put that expansion of imagination into practice? You know, when it's in opposition, is it to hold the government accountable on a fundamental ideological uh, level? Is it to work with organized labor to build a powerful front against the worst excesses of, of neoliberalism? Is it to do everything it can to make sure and to push for the building of a, a social safety net that actually supports people? To me, I'm not interested in a Labour Party that doesn't try to do that. Like, if you're not going to try and do that, I'm not interested in supporting you. But for these people, it seems to be that a Labour Party is there to essentially manage and contain and discipline any kind of dissenting or oppositional energy in this country, to restrict our imagination, to tell us that things aren't possible, that what we want is not possible, and to essentially do the work of the Tories for them. And I'll finish on this one point, you know, now that 
Corbynites have been basically all but purged from the Labour Party. And now, you know, the target is being put on, on the soft left. For these people, for these establishment figures, it will never be enough. It will never, ever be enough. You know, when Jeremy Corbyn was, was leader of the Labour Party, these same people were begging for a soft left candidate saying, you know, we need to be a broad church party and a soft left candidate is a fitting compromise between the right and the left. We need, you know, to expand. We need to be a broad church. We need to have a lot of different people represented in our party. And now that the Corbynites have been successfully purged, they are looking to, they're now turning their sights on the soft left. So whatever Corbyn could have done would have never been enough for them. It would have never satiated them. Because for these people, there is no compromise that would work in the interests of working class people, of organized labor. The only compromise, as far as they're concerned, is that we essentially cease to exist. And that is what they are are working towards. So it, it really, I do feel like so many of the contradictions that had otherwise been kind of contained under Blairism within the Labour Party, where there was still some kind of left energy, even though most of it had been purged, that has now, you know, we completely now know the Labour right and the, the liberal establishment or what they are. We know now categorically um, whose side they're on when it comes to it. Yeah, there's a thing that also really struck me when I read it. You know, I read it a few times. The first time I was angry. The second time I was kind of perplexed, which is Janan Ganesh, who wrote the biography of um, George Osborne in 2012, which obviously shows the caliber of his thinking and who he estimates in public life. He basically wants a one-party state. He wants two parties that think and do the same thing, but they just have different colors. And he is the kind of person who views himself as liberal and progressive and pluralist. Well, liberals don't tend to want one-party states. And it's actually a big sort of thing, increasingly, sadly, amongst people who define as centrist in this country, that they don't want substantial political differences between the parties. And the same people want, you know, proportional representation and PR. <laughs> if you don't like the difference between parties, my goodness, what do you think will happen when we have seven, eight, nine, ten parties in parliament? We have three or four parties forming a government in a coalition. So there's a strange contradiction, too, within, um, within liberal politics in the UK. Dahlia. Do you think that's a fair assessment, finally, that a lot of these people who view themselves as progressive and open-minded and, you know, you can just say what you like, you can say what you like as long as you agree with them, but actually they have quite authoritarian views on what's permissible amongst those in power? Yeah, and, and to me, this is fundamentally a, a class issue. You know, they, at this point, the media establishment represent the interests and see it as their job to secure the interests of their class, which is the ruling class. And that's why, you know, in the kind of 2010s, when a Corbyn becoming leader of the Labour Party was unimaginable, they felt very safe to kind of like, you know, get some street cred by expressing progressive opinions and whatever. And now that it's actually become like a tangible possibility and their class interest is like being threatened in a kind of genuine way, um, mm. they are ready to use all of their cultural power, all of their social power to crush that. And so I think that this is fundamentally highlights which class media represents. And unfortunately, even I, with all of my skepticism, didn't think that they would go this far. You know, if you had told me in 2014 how some of these Guardian columnists would have behaved, I don't even think I could have imagined that it would be, you know, quite this obnoxious. 
but maybe it's a lesson that we have to learn. I think so too. Also, we have to learn just to ignore a lot of these people. If you like this evening's content, if you want to build a new media for different politics, go to navarromedia.com forward slash support and help us get there. We think we can replace and dislodge some of these more perfidious voices like Jadan Ganesh at the FTE. I think we can do that in the next five, 10 years. Help us get there. Dahlia, thank you for joining me tonight. Thank you for holding my hand in the absence of Michael Walker. Stay safe in Berlin. And you, you, you're you not sweating too much. I think I'm sweating more, so you've done no. well there. My powder's held up well. Big up, Laura Mercier. <laughs> and thanks to all of you for watching our show tonight. I'll be back on Friday at 7 p.m. Fortunately, you'll have Michael Walker in the hot seat. I'll just be co-hosting. But for now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.